you were here last week, you know that we are in a series that we just started called Doxology. And it's a series about musical worship. Um, stick up a hand if, you're, if you love musical worship. Anyone here love musical yeah. worship? Yeah, 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 okay. And we're doing this series for two reasons. One reason is a biblical reason. And the biblical reason is you can't preach through the Bible and not talk about worship. Right? I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And then the, the second reason, it's kind of like a, a, a Thrive reason. I, I mentioned last week that when people ask me these days what my favorite thing about Thrive is, one of the answers I like to give is it's been the singing. Um, I've just been so stirred and inspired by the singing in this group. And so just to push into that a little bit, we thought it'd be cool just to highlight that aspect of, of what we get to do together by doing a series on worship. So last week... Who knows what we did here last week? Anyone remember what the topic was? Yes. <laughs> what is worship? Yeah. So I remember a long time ago, I was, I was at Thrive, and someone in the group asked, why do we do group karaoke every week? Why do we do group karaoke every week? And you know, like, that's actually not a bad impression. It kind of can seem like that if you're maybe not someone who's been a part of a church before. And so worship can feel weird. It can feel weird even to Christians. So yeah, last week we looked at the topic, what is worship? And what we want to do this week is we want to move towards some more practical questions now. If that's what worship is, if we, you know, we gave a definition for it last week, what does that look like in practice? Um, you know, we might wonder sometimes, is there a right way and a wrong way to worship? Or, you know, should I be expressive in worship? And if so, how, how much? So we want to begin kind of moving toward questions like that this week and next week. And in order to do that, let's actually begin with what our definition of worship is in the first place. So here's the definition from last week. Oh, that's the title of the message. You can ignore that for now. <laughs> worship is delighting in God for who he is and what he's done for us. Okay, so you remember that from last week? Worship is delighting in God for who he is and what he's done for us. But, but... This raises a really key question. And the key question is, who is God? <laughs> who is God? You know, how can we delight in, in God if we don't know who he is? And you can actually see that if you look at different religions. So think about this. Muslims worship Allah in a way that's really different than the way Christians worship. Or Buddhists worship in a way that's really, really different. So, so everything hangs on who God is. Do you see that? So what we want to do is we want to actually take tonight and we want to look at who God is, what Scripture says about who God is. And that's going, to, that's going to have really profound implications for how we worship. And before we even read what the Bible says God is like, before we get to our passage tonight, um, I want to set that up by looking at some competing ways that you can look at God. So we're going to look at some different views for how you can view God. And actually, I'm not even talking so much about ways that non-Christians might look at God. I'm actually talking about ways that even professing Christians can look at God, but that I actually believe miss out on the Bible's full picture of who God is. Got it? So let's turn that into a roadmap. Here's our roadmap for tonight. The roadmap is, number one, we're just going to look at some, some different views of God that we might have. Uh, then we're going to look at a passage of the Bible, John 17. And then we're just going to think about, like, okay, what does that mean for worship? What is the Bible's view of God, and what does that mean for, for worship? So, um, actually, if someone wouldn't mind helping get these handouts passed out, if we can get those going around, there's um, a bunch of John 17 handouts there. 
And we pass out the, the, the copy of, of the, the Bible passage. That way, you don't have to just take it from whoever the speaker is. You can actually look at it for yourself. You can mark it up. And while that's going around, let me just, let me just talk about this first thing really quick here. So we want to look at just some, some different views that are out there about God. And I want to just warn you, I'm actually going to get pretty theological tonight. And I know that this group can handle it because we have a lot of people who are just who just love theology a lot. So some of you guys are going to probably be really into this. Um, I want to share a framework with you. This is a framework that comes from a friend of mine named Ron Frost. And this outlines some different ways that we can think about God. So um, up on the slide here, I don't know if you can see that very well, but you've got these two different views. In the left-hand column, there, there's some different questions. And I'm going to look at these different questions that break down these different views of God. So number one, um, let's look at this, this first view. And the first view, if you were to ask the question of this first view, who is God? Well, one view of God is that God is the ultimate power. God is the ultimate power. So uh, anyone here uh, maybe who was raised Catholic or is Catholic, maybe you've heard of a guy named St. Thomas Aquinas. Thomas Aquinas was famous for being really, really, really smart and really, really, really fat. <laughs> <laughs> And I might, I might be exaggerating a little bit there. Anyway, he, he, was, he was a rather rotund individual. And he's the most famous theologian of the Catholic Church. Now I'm going to read you a quote about Thomas Aquinas' view of God. So in this quote, he's trying to prove that there is a God. And he says, well, God is basically the unmoved mover. You know, everything has a cause. And if you work all the way back, there had to have been a first cause. So here's what he says. Whatever is in motion must be put in motion by another. If that by which it is put in motion be itself put in motion, then this also must needs be put in motion by another, and that by another again. But this cannot go on to infinity, because then there would be no first mover. Therefore, it is necessary to arrive at a first mover put in motion by no other, and this everyone understands to be God. So you see, like God is the powerful first domino tipper over. You know, he's the one who kind of starts the chain reaction and that sets everything else in motion. So God is the ultimate power. Now let's ask another question. Let's ask, okay, if that's who God is, who are we? What, what is a human being? And in this view, a human being is a free moral agent who exists to give glory to God. And that actually means something for the definition of sin. Sin, in this view, is a violation of the will of God. Sin is violating God's will. It's breaking God's law. And salvation, therefore, is the reverse. It's the restored ability to choose God and to do his will. Okay? So, one view. Let's look at a second view. So, on the, the uh, other side here, view two... There's another view of God out there. This is a view, if you've ever come across any, like, the Catholic mystics, for example, this is a view of God that you might find there. In this particular view of God, you might say that God is the ineffable one. Anyone know what the word ineffable means? Ineffable. Ineffable is a word that means wordless. You can't describe it. Um, I call this can't-touch-this theology. You know what that's on? Yeah, so, so in other words, if you, can, if you can put a finger on it, if you can describe it, then you, you've missed it. That's not actually real. It's not actually true. And so uh, let's, let's just kind of go down this chart, then I'll make some comments here. So God is the ineffable one. 
And a human being, what's a human being? A human being is a spiritual being created for union with God. What is sin? Sin is not participating in God because of immorality and evil desires. You know, we're all meant to be united to God, but there's junk and there's stuff in us. There's bad things, bad desires. We do wrong things. And so we're, we're, we're cut off from God. We're separated from God. We're not united to him. And what is salvation? Well, salvation in this view is to ascend back into full union with God. To ascend back into full union with God. You have to purge yourself of all that nasty stuff. And you've got to, through spiritual exercises and other things, you have to kind of get yourself back in sync with God. And so a good representative of this perspective is um, one of the Catholic mystics. This is a quote from St. Teresa of Avila. I'm going to read it for you. And she, she uses this concept of spiritual marriage. And this is her way to describe what it is to be reunited with God. She says, In spiritual marriage, the union is like what we have when rain falls from the sky into a river. All is water, for the rain that fell from heaven cannot be divided or separated from the water of the river. Or it is like what we have when a little stream enters the sea. There is no means of separating the two. Or like the bright light entering a room through two different windows. Although the streams of light are separate when entering the room, they become one. So it's kind of like, you know, the metaphor of the raindrop falling into the ocean. She's saying that the goal is that we're supposed to reunite with God. We're supposed to merge or blend together with God. And that's union with God. So as you're listening to this, maybe some of you are thinking, you know, some of this kind of sounds right. You know, some of this kind of sounds like there's some, some biblical truth in this. Let me just, just as a way to kind of summarize, let's, let's look at this view one and view two, and let's see if we can boil them down. The first view, you can kind of summarize its focus as saying the focus is responsibility. So God is the ultimate power, and we're these moral agents who are made to give God glory. We've broken God's law, but we need to be restored to salvation in order to, to be able to choose God, do the right thing. And so the focus is we have to be responsible for, for giving God the glory he deserves. Okay, that's view number one. And then view number two, you might say the focus is not so much responsibility, but it's rapture. Another R word. Um, by the way, this is not uh, rapture in the eschatological sense, which I know many of you love to debate that topic here. Uh, yeah. But uh, well, by rapture, I just mean being caught up in this mystical union in the way that that quote described, okay? So, now, the, these are two different views of God, and they're, they're floating out there. You might have come across these different views in the church today about how to relate to God. And uh, just, I want to have you raise your hand. Raise your hand if you think the left view, the one on the, the left-hand side, is the more biblical view. Okay? Okay? Uh, what about the one on the right, whether that one's the more biblical view? Raise your hand if you're just confused and you're not sure. Okay, that's always a safe answer. <laughs> okay, so I want to set up these different views. And now let's, let's go to Scripture. Let's go to Scripture. I want to get a, a, just a better pulse on some things that we can see in the Bible about, about the God whom we worship. So go to John 17, which is on your handout. And John 17, is the, it's, it's a prayer that Jesus prays. And it's actually the longest recorded communication between Jesus and the Father that's recorded in the Bible. 
Uh, just, you know, curio- out of curiosity, any, any people, uh, any, anyone here tonight who can just say a little bit about the context of this passage? When, do, when, when does this chapter fall? What's, what's happening here as Jesus is praying this prayer? Anyone, anyone know? Yeah, Caleb? What was that in the back there? Just before, just before Jesus' arrest? Yeah, just before the cross. Yeah, he's about to he's about to go to the cross when he prays this. So I just want you to imagine that you're on death row and you're going to be executed in the next 24 hours. And I want you I just want to, I want you to be asking yourself, what would you be thinking about? And if you were praying, what would you be praying about? Just interesting question as we now read this prayer from from Jesus here. And as by the way, um, as we're reading it. I actually want to have you engage with this text. Um, so if you have a pen or a highlighter or just anything to write with, pull that out, actually. Because what I want us to do is, is as we're going through this, I want us to track three different terms here. And the terms in, in, this, in this chapter are glory, or the word glorify, noun or verb, glory, word, and love. They're up on the screen there. Glory, word, and and love. And I'll explain in a minute why we're, why we're trying to track these. So as I'm reading this, anytime you see any of those three words, I want you to circle it, underline it, highlight it, whatever, okay? So here we go. Let me, let me read John 17 for us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right. Yeah, you know, this is, this is, this is a passage that's worthy of a round of applause. Thank you, Stephen. So... <clears throat> First of all, did you guys notice those three words? Yeah? You guys get some, like, get, get some circles in, some underlines in? We're going to come back to those in just a minute. But, but what I want to actually show is that this passage, I believe, actually gives you a third view of what God is really like. And it's different than the other two. So let's, let's, let's get into this by looking at like one, one verse to start out. Let's look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. In verse 5, Jesus says... And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Any, what, what stands out to you about this passage? Just shout it out. Okay, glory. Glory's in there. Yeah, yeah. Before the world began. Yeah. So, you know, wait a minute. I thought that the beginning of everything was Genesis 1-1. You know, in the beginning, God created but it seems like John is saying that before God created, there was something going on. Interesting. Interesting. So, so remember what Thomas Aquinas said? You know, he said, God's the unmoved mover. He knocks over all the dominoes, right? And so he's primarily characterized by his power. But in John 17, you actually see that God is much more complex and unexpected. He's a complex character. In John 17, God is fundamentally Trinity. Is Trinity. Now, how do we know that? The way we know that is that, look in verse 5, it says that before anything else was created, there was a Father and there was a Son. And they were glorifying each other. Now, this is, this is so important that, do you know that John actually starts out his whole gospel this way? Look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, you know, sometimes John, you know, people say that John, you know, John's the first gospel you should read as a new Christian. And, and that's a great idea. It's also like a crazy idea. Because John, like you look at the very first verse, there's, you know, it blows your mind. Like how it says, <laughs> the, word, the word was with God. Okay, so they're separate. And the word was God. So they're the same? You know, like what, what, what's going on? But you see that from the very first verse, John is saying that there's a father and there's a son. There's trinity and unity. And actually, if you jump down a little further, John 1.18, John says, No one has ever seen God, 
The only God who is at the Father's side, now this would be Jesus, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So, you know, at the Father's side, you know what that literally means? It literally means toward the bosom of the Father. So this means as close as you can get, that from all eternity, before anything had ever been created, there was a Father and there was a Son, and they were loving each other. They were as close to each other as you could get. Or just go back to John 17, look at verse 24. Look at this. Verse 24, Jesus says, The glory that the Father gave to him is a glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So sometimes, you know, you look out at the news, and it seems like everything's impossibly, horribly depressing. You know, it's just a big, dark, awful world out there. And we we're tempted to think that, that that actually is reality. But no, no, no. If you dig down to the foundation of a house, what do you find? You find a thing that that house is built on. You find the ultimate reality of that house. At the ultimate reality of the universe is love. The Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father by the Spirit. So who is God? God is Trinity. And if God is Trinity, that means that he's relational. He's love. Now, one time I heard a, heard a story, but I, maybe I've shared this here, I can't remember, but I heard a story about a Christian missionary. She was talking to a Muslim woman, and, and the Christian missionary just kind of, you know, probably just a little throwaway line, she just said, you know, I don't know very much about God, but I know God. And this Muslim woman couldn't believe it because in her religion, her religion teaches that Allah is he's the eternally existing one. He's, he's ultimate power, but it's just him. You know, there's no other, you know, there's nothing else that he's ever been loving because he's all there is. Love can't exist unless there's an object. But the God of the Bible is different. It isn't just that God is, is loving or that he has love. What does 1 John say? actually says twice, verse 8 and verse 16, God is love. Not just loving, not just has love, God is love. And he is love because he is Trinity. So, what I want to do actually is I want to compare, I want, I want to take this view that we're looking at from John 17, and I want, to, I want to put it up in particular next to the first view. Do you remember what was in that first column? And I want to develop this, this contrast by looking at some additional questions here. And here are the questions. Let's ask ourselves, why did God create the world in the first place? And why did God save the world? In the first view, God creates the world because he wants to get glory. You know, he, he wants us to be the ones to glorify him, so he creates us so that, so that we can, he's seeking glory from us. And this is the same Answer to the other question, why did God save the world? Well, so that we would, we would glorify him. And so the focus here actually is, again, it's responsibility. You know, we're, we're called to glorify God. There's no one more holy, powerful, majestic, or praiseworthy than God. And so we're called to give him glory. Um, now, just to give you a taster of this, I, I, I literally just I Googled this and pulled this from a church website. This is, don't know much about this church, Cambridge Presbyterian Church in Cambridge, England. And in one of their explanations of some of the things they believe, they say, we glorify God by believing in him, by confessing him before men, by praising him, by defending his truth, by showing the fruits of the spirit in our lives, by worshiping him. Now, all those are good things. And all those things are things that, that as Christians, I think many of us do do and we should do. 
You know, so for example, if I were just to translate this, uh, believing in him, confessing him before men, that would be like evangelism, sharing your faith, praising him. That could be musical worship. It could be glorifying God through the way that you acknowledge him in your workplace, things like that. So I'm not, so, so don't, don't, don't hear me saying that we're not called to glorify God, but I'm saying that ultimately, this is all that there is at the bottom of this view. Now, let's look at the other view, and let's ask the same questions. Why did God create the world? Well, we know that it can't have been because he needed something. God didn't need glory from us because he had it already. He already had love. He already had glory because it was inside the Trinity. So the only explanation, the only possible explanation is that God made the world not to get love, but to give love. Do you see? God made the world not to get love, but to give love. Jeremiah 2.13. You guys know this verse? My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that, can, that cannot hold water. But the thing to not miss in this verse, do you notice what God calls himself? He says, I am the spring of living water. So God here, he's calling himself a fountain. Now think about a fountain. A fountain is something that is so full and so super abundant that instead of sucking water into itself, it pours water out of itself. So Jeremiah, God is saying in Jeremiah, God is a fountain of love. And so why did God create? God created to share his love with us. And why did God save the world? He saved the world to share his love with us. Look at the very last verse in John 17. If you read this and don't just have your heart explode out of your chest because of how amazing it is, then go read it again. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Did you catch that? Do you see that? Jesus is saying, the Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Let me say that again. The Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. Jonathan Edwards says it perfectly. Listen to this. The creation of the world seems to have been especially for this end, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature and to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart, and that in this way God might be glorified. Now that's some old language. He was an 18th century guy. But do you, see, do you see his point? He's saying the reason that God created the world was love. Was love. And what that means then, going back to our chart, is that the focus in this view is not so much responsibility as it is response. God is inviting us to respond to him in love. We love because he first loved us. God loves us. And our worship, our response to him is to love him back in return. And by the way, you can't give what you don't have. You know, sometimes, you, you know, man, I've had times in my life where I've just so desperately tried to love God. And all I do is I just keep sinning. <laughs> because you can't give what you don't have. If you want to fight sin, if you want to love God, if you want to worship God, 
the best thing you can do is just to get in touch with God's love for you. Because our love, our worship is a response to his love for us. Now, I want to just go, go back to that last line of the Jonathan Edwards quote. He says, you know, God's goal in creating was to, to share his love with us and that in this way, God might be glorified. So do you catch this? He says that the way God is glorified is through sharing his love with us. Now go back to the text. Go back to John 17. And this is now where we're going to look at all the, these instances of the word glory that we were tracking. So how, how many, how many uh, instances of glory? How many, how many times does it appear here? Anyone know? Anyone count them up? Eight times, I heard someone say. What was it, Cody? Seven times? I, I counted eight times. You know, sometimes I, I'm better at theology than math, so. Um, but I counted eight times. You may have to check me on that. And twice, this word appears in verse 1. Look at verse 1 one more time. It says, uh, when Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Now, remember what we said. The context of this is, the context is he's about to go to the cross. He's about to die. <laughs> and so do you see how profound this is? Jesus is saying the glory of God is most fully on display in a scene of self-giving. It's when Jesus pours out himself unto death for our sake that we see the glory of God on full display. And if you don't believe me on that, let me show you one more verse. This is John 13. So this is where Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper with the disciples. And he's just washed his disciples' feet. And, he, and by the way, that includes Judas. He's just washed Judas' feet. And he's just served Judas the, you know, the little communion bread. And Judas is so disgusted by Jesus' humility, he's just, he can't bear to see you know, the Son of God stooping to wash dirty men's feet. The, this is the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, and he immediately leaves, and he goes out to betray Jesus. So now, like, the ball's in motion. Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified because of what Judas has done. And so right as Judas leaves, or right after Judas leaves, you know what Jesus says? He says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Now is the Son of Man glorified. When Jesus has just given himself away to Judas, when he's just loved on someone who doesn't love him back, and Judas goes out to betray him, Jesus says that he's glorified. So do you see that the glory of God is on display in self-giving, in Jesus emptying himself, pouring himself out in love? Or now look at this. Go back to John 17, and let's look at the last part of the prayer. And so the last part of the prayer, it's on the back side. It starts at verse 20. This is the part of the prayer where Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for those who are going to believe in him through the message that his disciples preached. That would be every single person who's a believer in this room. And did you notice the word glory here? Look at verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So here's, a, here's another, like, you know, head us blowed moment. <laughs> you see this? Jesus is saying God want, he, he wants to give his glory to us. He wants to share his glory with us. Do you see how profound this is? Sometimes, I think that we tend to think of God not as a fountain, but as a drain. 
You know, a drain is something that sucks things into itself. And sometimes we're tempted to think of God in that way. You know, we say God has made us for his glory, which is true. And we think that that means that God made us so that he can get something from us. And that's the primary reason that we're here. And that, and that leads us to think of glorifying God as primarily as, as doing religious duties, like Bible reading or evangelism or singing in worship, like the quote from that church. That's the view of God in the left column. But the God of John 17 is a God who's glorified by giving his glory away. And so instead of taking, he gives. Instead of a drain, he's a fountain. And, and man, you guys, um, this is not just because we have three people here whose last name is Edwards. But once again, Jonathan Edwards gets it right. Here's a, here's a quote about Jonathan Edwards with Jonathan Edwards. The 18th century New England theologian Jonathan Edwards puts it strikingly. God's aim in creating the world, he said, was himself. But because this God's very self is so different from that of any others, that means something utterly different from what it would mean with other gods. This God's very self is found in giving, not taking. This God is like a fountain of goodness. And so, Jonathan Edwards said, seeking himself means seeking himself diffused and expressed. In other words, his goodness spreads out from him. In other words, seeking to have himself, his life, and his goodness shared. His very nature is about going out and sharing of his own fullness. And so, that is what he is all about. In contrast to all other gods, the exuberant nature of this god means that his pleasure is rather a pleasure in diffusing and communicating to the creature, to us in other words, than in receiving from the creature. And by the way, if you think that, oh my gosh, this is really, really good news, it is, and it's super humbling. You know what this says? This says you have nothing to give to God. You have nothing to give to God but the sin that made your salvation necessary. You know, sometimes you think, oh man, I, you know, God, you're so, you, you should be really thankful that you have me on on, on your team, you know, because, you know, I just have so much worship to give you. I have so much service to give you. You know what's really refreshing? It's really refreshing to realize we have nothing that we can offer to God. It frees you just to, to say, God, like, I can just receive your love for me, and I can just return that love right back to you. So let, let's fill out the rest of our column here. Let's look at this final view, the third view, and let's ask the four questions. Who is God? Well, we said that God is Trinity, and this changes everything. This means that what is a human being? Human beings, we are relational, responsive beings who have been made to enjoy God. Now, what is sin? This means that sin is more than simply mere rule-breaking. Sin is to turn away from God's love and to turn towards self-love. So Martin Luther, who maybe some of you guys celebrated on Reformation Day, the way he put it is that sin is man curved in on himself. Kind of an interesting image, isn't it? It's like saying, we become drains. Sin turns us into drains instead of fountains. So what is salvation? Salvation is being uncurved. It's being drawn to the love of God in Christ by the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? And so this means that the focus, it's not responsibility, it's not rapture, it's relationship. It's relationship. God made you for relationship with him. Okay, so now let's take all of this 
And let's think about what are the implications of all of this for worship? What are the implications for worship? Well, let's, let's take each of these three views and let's just flesh out the kind of worship that flows from each of them. Well, looking at view number one, worship in view number one is doctrinaire and distant. It's doctrinaire and distant. Doctrinaire just means that it's kind of just a bunch of stale truth with nothing else. Doctrinaire and distant. Now, why is this? The reason it is is because, you know, hey, your responsibility is to give God glory, which means that the focus is only on singing songs that have an exalted view of God that contain great theological truths. Now, the worship risk here is to downplay emotion. The risk here is to downplay emotion. And the reason is because emotional or experiential worship might be seen as an inappropriate way to engage with a holy God. You know, he's so holy that I, mean, I don't want to allow my kind of my messy human emotions to, to in, intrude with that. Or maybe there's a fear that maybe too much emotion means that we're distracting ourselves from a focus on God. Do you see that? So the, the focus, the worship focus is on truth and doctrine. And you could say that worship comes from the head. Worship comes from the head. It's primarily cerebral. Do you see that? So I call this the head ditch. I want to be careful not to fall into the head ditch. So now let's look at uh, the other view. This is uh, view two. And this is, remember, kind of the, the mystical union one. So in this view, worship is mystical and ecstatic. You know what ecstasy means? It means that you're, you know, you're so overcome by an experience that it's like you've, you've kind of, you know, you're, you're outside of yourself. Because in worship, what are you seeking? You're seeking a rapturous union with God. Now, what's the risk here? The risk here is to downplay truth. Because, you know, I'm seeking union with the one who is ineffable. Remember what that word means? It means that I can't describe him with words. He's so great, I can't describe him in words or theological truths. And so the worship focus here becomes emotion and experience. And worship comes from the emotions. So we've got the head ditch. Over here's the emotions ditch. But what about the third view? What if John 17 is true? And what if God invites us into the, the, the love and the relationship of the fellowship of the Trinity? Well, in this case, worship is relational and responsive. In worship, we're responding to the love that God has poured out to us. And so the worship focus is love. And by the way, that means truth and emotion. Truth and emotion. Now, the reason it's truth and emotion is that, hey, this isn't mysticism here. This is relationship. You know, mysticism, you know what mysticism is? Mysticism is raw experience of nothing. <laughs> raw experience of nothing. But relationship is real experience of Jesus. And Jesus says that he's the way and the truth and the life. And this is why the last word here that we were chasing in John 17 is this word, word. <laughs> The word word. So look back at the passage. Look at verse 17. Jesus here is praying for the disciples to be kept distinct from the world. And he says here, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the word is what combs the disciples out of the world. It kind of helps to separate them from the world so that they're in the world but not of the world. And so that means that 
You know, when you have a real relationship with Jesus, it's not like, you know, you're like high on something and you, you know, was in some kind of ecstatic state and, you know, you lose control of your mind and your body. No, no, no. Relationship with Jesus isn't wordless ecstatic experience. It's experience grounded in truth because it's experience of the one who is the word and is the truth. Does that make sense? Now, where does worship come from here in this last view? It comes from what the Bible calls the heart. In the Bible, the heart is the seat of the human person. It's like the, the you know, Grand Central Station of, of you. <laughs> and in Scripture, that includes both the rational and the emotional parts of us. The rational and the emotional parts of us. Do you remember in the book of Proverbs, chapter 4, it says, Above all, guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. The heart is the center of who you are. And so if it really is from the heart, both the, you know, kind of the head and the emotions, this means that in worship, God is inviting us to respond to him with all of us. All of us. Look at Matthew 22. This is the greatest commandment on, uh, according to Jesus. He says, you shall love, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So your mind, worshiping God through reveling in rich, deep, theological truth about who God is. You know, his greatness, his majesty, his praiseworthiness, and his love for us. So charismatics, take note. <laughs> I'm one of you. Okay. Also in here, heart and soul. Your emotions. Worship should be a deeply emotional experience. Conservatives, take note. <laughs> now, I, to, I just want to say something here. I'm not referring to anyone in this room tonight, but I have heard Christians, particularly from the conservative and reformed wings of the church, talk down about worship songs that strongly focus on Jesus' love. It's said to be too emotional too experiential or even creepy. My friends, my friends, I need to call this out as hypocrisy. You are young adults, and I have seen you fall in love. <laughs> and I know, <laughs> I know that you are capable of giddy feelings when you are in love with someone and when someone is in love with you. So don't try to tell me that you can feel that way about a, human, a fickle human being and that when you're responding to the love of God and Jesus Christ, and, you know, amazing, right? That, that, oh, you just turn that part of yourself off. No, 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 no. Biblically, there's no way around it. Jesus is a lover. Jesus is a lover. And there are going to be some of you who love that and some of you are like, oh, that's super weird. But hey, Christianity is weird. Or maybe it's not weird. Maybe you're weird. I don't know. Point is... All the, all the charismatics are excited. <laughs> but no, just my, my point is, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, to beat a stick here, but I just, I, I just want to say that if the idea of relating to Jesus as a lover, of worshiping him in that way, is a new experience for you, then praise God. Because God has so much more that he wants to invite us into in worship. And so all of us have something to learn here. All of us come from a particular background or you know, a particular personality, you know, temperament. And some of us are going to feel comfortable with one thing. Some of us are going to feel comfortable with another thing. 
And the great thing about who God is is he actually invites us all to go deeper in worship with him. So, so let me close by just doing two things. The first one is to summarize, okay? So just to summarize what we, what we said. The God we worship, who God is, changes the way that we worship. Do you see that? And if God is who the Bible says he is, that means that he invites us to, the way he invites us to worship, it isn't doctrinaire and distant. It isn't mystical and ecstatic. Instead, he pulls us out of the head ditch and he pulls us out of the emotions ditch and he invites us to worship that is relational and responsive. Worship isn't primarily a responsibility. It's our response of love to God's love. And love means all of us, the head and the heart. That's the first thing. And the last thing is I just want to actually invite the band. Because the reason that we're actually ending with worship rather than starting with worship is because we want to actually respond to, the, to this. We want to respond to what God's been saying in Scripture in John 17 tonight. And, and just as um, Simone's going to lead us, just, just the, the invitation that I want to extend to you, and this is an invitation. This is not a command. This is not pressure. This is just an invitation. Um, just as we sing right now, it's possible that maybe you feel that God is challenging you to respond to this message by stepping out in a, to, to worship in a way that might be new, might be uncomfortable for you. And, and if, you, if, that, if that's of God, if that's something that, that you believe he's stirring in you, I just want to say, like, this is a, this is a, a place that you can do that. Um, we've got so many different kinds of people in this room. That's what I love about Thrive, that, you know, none of us fit in. Everyone, everyone fits in. So I, I just want to invite you to push the envelope a little bit and to just talk to God and say, God, how are you inviting me to respond to who you are tonight? So let me pray for us, and then we're going we're gonna to take some time to worship before we move into announcements and small groups. Jesus, sometimes I just feel like we got so lucky to get the, the God that you are. And I know it doesn't work that way, but Lord, thank you. Thank you that who we see you in John 17 to be, this is, who you, this is who you really are. And that you've invited us into love relationship with you. Lord, help our worship reflect that as we turn to that now. In Jesus' name, amen.